the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zulsdorf. We welcome as our guest today, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger from 1988, as he addressed a plenary session of all the bishops of Chile and Santiago. following is the translation of a text of an address given by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, then Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, to the bishops of Chile in Santiago. The date was the 13th of July, 1988. Here's a little context. In the months preceding this address, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre of the Society of St. Pius X had signed an agreement with the Holy See, represented by Cardinal Ratzinger. Lefebvre abjured this agreement the next day. Then, on the 30th of June, 1988, Lefebvre consecrated four bishops without the permission of the Holy See, thus incurring a latte sententiae excommunication for himself and the four bishops consecrated. That excommunication would eventually be lifted in 2009 by Benedict XVI, the same Joseph Ratzinger. Now here's an English translation of the text of Cardinal Ratzinger's address to the Chilean bishops on the 13th of July, 1988, just a couple weeks after that famous consecration in a cone. And here are some things to listen for. First, I suggest that for the sake of this podcast, you tune out a little of what Ratzinger says about Lefebvre and as Ratzinger calls it back in 1988, the schism of the SSPX. Now it is true that on the 2nd of July in uh, 1988, John Paul II issued the motu proprio Ecclesia Dei Adflicta, in which he too used the word schism. But after that, the Holy See slowly but surely backed away from using the word schism to describe what Lefebvre did. The question is still open on that, whether it was a schism or not, but that is not what I want to underscore in presenting this text. Otherwise, we will just descend into the usual fever swamp. What you should keep your ears tuned to is how Ratzinger calls first for an examination of our own conscience. Moreover, even though this is in 1988, you hear in Ratzinger's speech already the concept of continuity versus rupture which he developed as Pope so forcefully in 2005 in his address to the Roman Curia. At that time, I wrote that the address was in the main also a polemic against the notions of Karl Rahner and his theological descendants. I, I think that's true. I think here we hear that same polemic uh, present in this address from 1988 when he talks about the world and the sacred. And speaking of the sacred, turn your... Tune your ears to how he describes the end of liturgical worship as an encounter with mystery, a point that has been at the heart of pretty much everything I write and say for a long time now. I intuited this in my first experiences of the Catholic liturgy, this many years ago, and then I honed those ideas more closely in conversations with the same Cardinal Ratzinger over many years when I was in Rome, and then later on uh, with others who were deep thinking theologians who have their heads screwed on in the correct direction. 
Listen also for Ratzinger's discussion of what results from abandoning a sense of the sacred. Religious indifferentism comes into play. Oh, my prophetic soul, how he sounds like he's describing today. Also in this address, we have the description that would come to be often quoted about how some people turn the Second Vatican Council into a kind of a super dogma, which could never be questioned, a super dogma set over and against all other previous dogmas or anything that the Church had ever done before the Council. On the other hand, uh, things which were before the Council could no, no longer be tolerated. They had been superseded, and no one could ever question anything that, would, that the Council ever did. It turned into a kind of a super dogma. It's often, often quoted. So here is Ratzinger's 13 July 1988 speech to the bishops of Chile in Santiago. In recent months, we have put a lot of work into the case of Lefebvre with the sincere intention of creating for his movement a space within the Church that would be sufficient for it to live. The Holy See has been criticized for this. It is said that it has not defended the Second Vatican Council with sufficient energy, that, while it has treated progressive movements with great severity, it has displayed an exaggerated sympathy with the traditionalist rebellion. The developments of events is enough to disprove these assertions. The mythical harshness of the Vatican in the face of the deviations of the progressives is shown to be mere empty words. Up until now, in fact, only warnings have been published. In no case have there been strict canonical penalties in the strict sense. And the fact that when the chips were down, Lefebvre denounced an agreement that had already been signed, shows that the Holy See, while it made truly generous concessions, did not grant him that complete license which he desired. Lefebvre has seen that, in the fundamental part of the agreement, he was being held to accept Vatican II and the affirmations of the post-conciliar magisterium, according to the proper authority of each document. There is a glaring contradiction in the fact that it is just the people who have let no occasion slip to allow the world to know of their disobedience to the Pope and to the magisterial declarations of the last twenty years who think they have the right to judge that this attitude is too mild and who wish that an absolute obedience to Vatican II had been insisted upon. In a similar way, they would claim that the Vatican has conceded a right to dissent to Lefebvre, which has been obstinately denied to the promoters of a progressive tendency. In reality, the only point which is affirmed in the agreement, following Lumen Gentium 25, is the plain fact that not all documents of the Council have the same authority. For the rest, it was explicitly laid down in the text that was signed that public polemics must be avoided, and that an attitude is required of positive respect 
for official decisions and declarations. It was conceded, in addition, that the fraternity of St. Pius X would be able to present to the Holy See, which reserves to itself the sole right of decision, their particular difficulties in regard to interpretations of juridical and liturgical reforms. All of this shows plainly that in this difficult dialogue Rome has united generosity and all that was negotiable with firmness in essentials. The explanation which Monsignor Lefebvre has given for the retraction of his agreement is revealing. He declared that he has finally understood that the agreement he signed aimed only at integrating his foundation into the conciliar church. The Catholic Church in union with the Pope is, according to him, the conciliar church, which has broken with its own past. It seems indeed that he is no longer able to see that we are dealing with the Catholic Church in the totality of its tradition, and Vatican II belongs to that. Without any doubt, the problem that Lefebvre has posed has not been concluded by the rupture of June 30th. It would be too simple to take refuge in a sort of triumphalism and to think that this difficulty has ceased to exist from the moment in which the movement led by Lefebvre has separated itself by a clean break with the Church. A Christian never can, or should, take pleasure in a rupture. Even though it is absolutely certain that the fault cannot be attributed to the Holy See, it is a duty for us to examine ourselves as to what errors we have made, and which ones we are making even now. The criteria with which we judge the past in the Vatican II decree on ecumenism must be used, as is logical, to judge the present as well. One of the basic discoveries of the theology of ecumenism is that schisms can take place only when certain truths and certain values of the Christian faith are no longer lived and loved within the Church. The truth which is marginalized becomes autonomous, remains detached from the whole of the ecclesiastical structure, and a new movement then forms itself around it. We must reflect on this fact, that a large number of Catholics, far beyond the narrow circle of the fraternity of Lefebvre, see this man as a guide, in some sense, or at least as a useful ally. It will not do to attribute everything to political motives, to nostalgia, or to cultural factors of minor importance. These causes are not capable of explaining the attraction which is felt even by the young, and especially by the young, who come from many quite different nations, and who are surrounded by completely distinct political and cultural realities. Indeed, they show what is, from any point of view, a restricted and one-sided outlook. But there is no doubt whatever that a phenomenon of this sort would be inconceivable unless there were good elements at work here, which in general do not find sufficient opportunity to live within the church of today. For all these reasons, we ought to see this matter primarily as the occasion for an examination of conscience, we should allow ourselves to ask fundamental questions about the defects in the pastoral life of the Church which are exposed by these events. Thus, we will be able to offer a place within the Church to those who are seeking and demanding it and succeed in destroying all reason for schism. We can make such schism pointless by renewing the interior realities of the Church. There are three points, I think, that it is important to think about. 
While there are many motives that might have led a great number of people to seek a refuge in the traditional liturgy, the chief one is that they find the dignity of the sacred preserved there. After the council, there were many priests who deliberately raised desacralization to the level of a program on the plea that the New Testament abolished the cult of the temple, the veil of the temple which was torn from top to bottom at the moment of Christ's death on the cross is, according to certain people, the sign of the end of the sacred. The death of Jesus outside the city walls, that is to say, in the public world, is now the true religion. Religion, if it has any being at all, must have it in the non-sacredness of daily life, in love that is lived. Inspired by such reasoning, they put aside the sacred vestments. They have despoiled the churches as much as they could of that splendor which brings to mind the sacred, and they have reduced the liturgy to the language and the gestures of ordinary life, by means of greetings, common signs of friendship, and such things. There is no doubt that, with these theories and practices, they have entirely disregarded the true connection between the Old and the New Testaments. It is forgotten that this world is not the kingdom of God, and that the Holy One of God, John 6.69, continues to exist in contradiction to this world, that we have need of purification before we draw near to Him, that the profane, even after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, has not succeeded in becoming the holy. The risen one has appeared, but to those whose heart has been opened to him, to the holy. He did not manifest himself to everyone. It is in this way a new space has been opened for the religion to which all of us would now submit, this religion which consists in drawing near to the community of the Risen One, at whose feet the women prostrated themselves and adored Him. I do not want to develop this point any further now. I confine myself to coming straight to this conclusion. We ought to get back the dimension of the sacred in liturgy. Liturgy is not a festivity. It is not a beating for the purpose of having a good time. It is of no importance that the parish priest has cudgeled his brains to come up with suggestive ideas or imaginative novelties. The liturgy is what makes the thrice holy God present among us. It is the burning bush. It is the alliance of God with man in Jesus Christ who has died and risen again. The grandeur of the liturgy does not rest upon the fact that it offers an interesting entertainment but in rendering tangible the totally other, whom we are not capable of summoning. He comes because he wills. In other words, the essential in the liturgy is the mystery, which is realized in the common ritual of the church. All the rest diminishes it. Men experiment with it in lively fashion, and find themselves deceived when the mystery is transformed into distraction when the chief actor in the liturgy is not the living God, but the priest or the liturgical director. Aside from the liturgical questions, the central points of conflict at present are Lefebvre's attack on the decree which deals with religious liberty and on the so-called spirit of Assisi. Here is where Lefebvre fixes the boundaries between his position and that of the Catholic Church today. 
I need hardly say in so many words that what he is saying on these points is unacceptable. Here we do not wish to consider his errors. Rather, we want to ask ourselves where there is a lack of clarity in ourselves. For Lefebvre, what is at stake is the warfare against ideological liberalism, against the relativization of truth. Obviously, we are not in agreement with him that, understood according to the Pope's intentions, the text of the Council or the Prayer of Assisi were relativizing. It is a necessary task to defend the Second Vatican Council against Monsignor Lefebvre as valid and as binding upon the Church. Certainly there is a mentality of narrow views that isolate Vatican II and which has provoked this opposition. There are many accounts of it which give the impression that, from Vatican II onward, everything has been changed, and that what preceded it has no value, or at best has value only in the light of Vatican II. The Second Vatican Council has not been treated as part of the entire living tradition of the Church, but as an end of tradition, a new start from zero. The truth is that this particular council defined no dogma at all, and deliberately chose to remain on a modest level as a merely pastoral council, and yet many treat it as though it had made itself into a sort of super-dogma, which takes away the importance of all the rest. This idea is made stronger by things that are now happening. That which previously was considered most holy, the form in which the liturgy was handed down, suddenly appears as the most forbidden of all things, the one thing that can safely be prohibited. It is intolerable to criticize decisions which have been taken since the Council. On the other hand, if men make question of ancient rules, or even the great truths of the faith, for instance, the corporal virginity of Mary, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the immortality of the soul, etc., nobody complains, or only does so with the greatest moderation. I myself, when I was a professor, have seen how the very same bishop who, before the council, had fired a teacher who was really irreproachable for a certain crudeness of speech, was not prepared, after the council, to dismiss a professor who openly denied certain fundamental truths of the faith. All this leads a great number of people to ask themselves if the church of today is really the same as that of yesterday, or if they have changed it for something else without telling people. The one way in which Vatican II can be made plausible is to present it as it is, one part of the unbroken, the unique tradition of the church and of her faith. In the spiritual movements of the post-conciliar era, there is not the slightest doubt that frequently there has been an obliviousness or even a suppression of the issue of truth. Here perhaps we confront the crucial problem for theology and for pastoral work today. The truth is thought to be a claim that is too exalted, a triumphalism that cannot be permitted any longer. You see this attitude plainly in the crisis that troubles the missionary ideal and missionary practice. If we do not point to the truth in announcing our faith, and if this truth is no longer essential for the salvation of man, then the missions lose their meaning. In effect, 
the conclusion has been drawn, and it has been drawn today, that in the future we need only seek that Christians should be good Christians, Muslims, good Muslims, Hindus, good Hindus, and so forth. If it comes to that, how are we to know when one is a good Christian or a good Muslim? The idea that all religions are, if you talk seriously, only symbols of what ultimately is incomprehensible is rapidly gaining ground in theology and has already penetrated into liturgical practice. When things get to this point, faith is left behind because faith really consists in the fact that I am committing myself to the truth so far as it is known. So in this matter also, there is every motive to return to the right path. If once again we succeed in pointing out and living the fullness of the Catholic religion with regard to these points, we may hope that the schism of Lefebvre will not be of long duration. That was Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger's speech to the Chilean bishops back in 1988. A lot of water has flowed under the bridge since then, and the biological solution, as I sometimes call it to the dismay of liberals everywhere, is taking care of many on both sides who have been entrenched in their positions. As far as rapprochement with the Society of St. Pius X these days, we are going to have to wait and see. Internal politics in the Holy See made what seemed at the time a dumb deal to fall apart, and now both the Holy See and the SSPX have seemingly stepped away from each other, which is really too bad. I fear that the longer this goes on, the harder it will be to heal. Uh, the biological solution does not just kill people off, it also brings up new generations to replace them. We now have a generation of followers of the SSPX who have never known formal unity with Rome. And so one has to ask the question, how motivated will they truly be to embrace formal unity with Rome, even should they be offered everything they virtually want, everything that they would like to have? Will they really want to embrace unity, a unity that they have never known. The longer this goes on, I think the harder it will be to heal this. Now back to the liberal or progressivist side. Um, the They are aging and fading. Sometimes I call them the aging hippies, though that's you know kind of harsh. I think it sort of describes the attitude of uh, many of them. You know, Father Love Beads of Our Lady Queen of Hugs and uh, the various Father Love Beads who became bishops along the way and um, people who are uh, functioning in parishes and Catholic academia and so forth, they still have a lot of influence and they still resist vigorously, sometimes with great anger, the vision of continuity that Ratzinger offered and Benedict XVI offered. And it's, it's, a hard, it's hard sometimes for younger people to understand their intransigence and uh, here are a few ideas about that. You know, these aging 
hippie liberals uh, interpret everything within the church. And I'm talking just about Americans at this point. You know, pardon me for those of you who are in Old Blighty or who are down under or you know, wherever you may be. If you're not in the United States, even in Canada, um, this doesn't really apply to the Canadian experience. But in, the, in these United States, I, I think we have a situation where these, these aging liberals uh, interpret everything concerning the council, everything going on within the church through the lens that they formed during the, the anti-authoritarian civil rights and anti-authoritarian, anti-war protest movements of the 1960s that were going on around the time of the council and when they were young and when their identities were forming. You know, when we, on the other hand, try to uphold hierarchy or authority or uh, dogmatic teachings of the magisterium of the church or the rubrics of the, either the newer form or the older form of Holy Mass or obedience to the church's law uh, or decorum in liturgy and sacred music. Uh, what happens with these, these folks is that an involuntarily uh, subconscious switch clicks in their heads. They take uh, a faithful Catholic position of continuity to be an attack on themselves and on Vatican II, with which their identity is inextricably involved, but involved with all sorts of other forces vectoring in on it, especially that anti-authoritarian attitude that they grew up in around the civil rights movement, the anti-war protests, even the um, the sexual liberation thing and the feminism thing, the Betty Friedan uh, view of you know, feminine mystique and all that. You know, the council itself in their received liberal interpretation can never be questioned and never subjected to the authority of the letter of the council's texts because they can't separate their understanding of the council from those movements of protest. Vatican II, in their minds, can't be separated from the protest movements at which they idolized and which eventually kind of fused in their minds and their identities as an iconic and paradigm Digmatic and even mythic force. So, the events outside the church in these United States back in those days are completely fused with the event of the council in their minds and fused into certain post conciliar reforms. And so, they interpret everything they do through the lens of this combined, unassailable myth. And that's why when they hear some Latin or see a Beretta or, or cassock or a certain kind of vestment or hear a certain kind of music and so forth, this switch clicks in their head and they revert to form. They revert to that mythic, iconic, paradigmatic thing that's fused into their identities. And the thing is that this myth is now itself dying out, partly because of the passage of time, right? The biological solution is working on all of us. Now, I think we have reason to expect a lot of good things in the future because of the, the biological solution. But in the meantime, we have been dealt severe erosions uh, to our Catholic identity, and I'm afraid 
that only the catastrophic may help us wake up and make the choices that we need to make. Uh, we need, I think, a strong, uh, a stronger, uh, let's call it a hard identity Catholicism rather than a soft, squishy, amorphous Catholic identity. Um, we're being successfully driven out of the social fabric, out to the edges, out to the margins, the, the fraying hem or warp and weft of the fabric of society. We're being successfully driven out, partly because we don't know who we are. If we don't know who we are, if we can't articulate a position from a Catholic point of view, then why should anyone listen to us as Catholics? We're far more easily driven out of the public square. Um, so, alas, uh, I think something catastrophic is necessary to wake us up. In the meantime, uh, what we're seeing is more and more a, a paradigm shift where um, the soft identity, the kind of amorphous Catholic identity that still uses a lot of words and still is very strong, very good in certain aspects are being held up as the the, the right sort of Catholic thing, even though it's very squishy and very amorphous around the edge, where when it comes to just about everything, certain f figures in this thing are uh, find always, always find a way to straddle the Olympian middle, don't they? But uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how things are playing out. We're just into the 21st century a little bit. The biological solution is working on us all, on both sides, and not just to kill uh, kill us off, according to the effects of original sin, but also to raise up a new generation that is a different perspective of the pivotal moment in the lifetimes and in the memories of many Catholics today, the Second Vatican Council, but also with a very different kind of post-Christian world in which we're living. So we shall see how it all works out. In the meantime, I think we can go back a quarter of a century, back to Santiago, Chile, and hear what a man who would become Pope had to say about issues of continuity and of liturgy and of our Catholic identity and of about an examination of our own consciences in regard to all of these things. I'll end this podcast. Come and visit at the blog. It's Father Z's blog. For so many years it was called What Does the Prayer Really Say? But I, I'm moving away from that title because originally the title came from columns that I was writing for the Catholic Weekly English language newspaper, The Wanderer. And since that column, I'm no longer writing that column. And since a lot of the issues uh, for which I was writing that column have been resolved, and since the blog was originally created to be an archive for those articles, but it has certainly turned into uh, something else. It took on a life of its own. I think maybe we should just call it Father Z's blog. But you can still find it at the old classic address, wdtprs.com. What does the prayer really say? That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. 
or you can just Google Father Z. You can find me at fatherzonline.com too. I've got all sorts of different ways you can find me. Come and take part in the discussions. You can register. Uh, I have a lot of spammers attacking my registration form. So if you do sign up to comment in the com box, uh, remember I am benevolent dictator of the blog. You have to register, you have to prove your registration. Put something about yourself in the proper field in the form that will prove to me that you are not a vile spammer who deserves to roast in the deepest cinders of hell. So thank you very much for your attention. Please pray for me as I will for you.